Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. I'd like to begin by acknowledging that we meet today on land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respect to their elders, past and present. And I extend my respect to any First Nations members of the audience here with us this morning and to all First Nations across this continent, I'd ask everyone to take a moment to consider their relationship to and their knowledge of the place where they live, um, what they know of the First Nations politics, history, culture, writing, of wherever it is that you currently reside, I'm joined today uh, by two incredible authors. Um, I have to my left Paige Clark, who uh, released her debut recently. She is haunted, an amazing cover to you. I'm sure you've seen it in bookstores. Uh, it's been Stella Longlisted. She is a Chinese American Australian author. Um, I have reviewed the collection. I remember calling it. Um, I think the best debut I'd read that year um, and, and saying many other nice things besides, it's an amazing collection. Could you please welcome Paige Clark? <laughs> We're also joined today by Tony Birch, the man who needs no introduction, uh, widely acclaimed, been writing since before I was born, um, lived more lives than I can imagine living. Um, his latest short story collection, Dark as Last Night, um, is, uh, I mean, I don't know what to say because he's already had everything that could be said about him said already, but it's, it's another phenomenal collection. And um, I'm, I'm really pleased to welcome him back to the stage, Tony Birch. Thanks. My name's Declan Fry, by the way, I'm a writer and essayist, and um, uh, my latest work is a short story in the anthology Another Australia, which is out on the 31st of May. I was thinking that we would begin with, um, perhaps if you like, um, Paige, to tell us a little bit about She Is Haunted. I'm sure many people have read it, but by way of introduction, just a few sentences, and maybe if you'd like to give us a reading. Yes, um, so She Is Haunted is a collection of short stories that are really a fictional, I guess, document that traces my life um, over the past kind of eight years when I was in the process of writing it. And I guess it's about um, all of the sort of baggage that we carry with us, so all the events um, in one's life that haunt a person. Um, and, and it's really... I guess it's just a collection that's unified by that, this sort of working out of the different things um, that we carry with us. And I'll read a passage now from a story called Conversations with My Brother About Trees, and this is just the opening paragraph. Higher, my brother said, higher. I kept climbing the tree until his head was like a black dot of punctuation. I turned it into a question mark. Why am I up here? 
This is my first memory of my fear of heights. This is my first memory, full stop. My mother had an aversion to the natural world from the beginning. We lived a life of keeping things out. The obvious things, of course. Ants, neighborhood cats, robbers, and other things too. Daylight, fresh air, relatives visiting from China. Thank you. Um, you know, it's unusual. I might actually, Tony, if you would like to introduce your book quickly just before we get into conversation. And yeah, sure. Read us um, to... So a lot of this book was written or finished um, during first lockdown. Um, and I suppose the themes are uh, pretty straightforward. Um, there are three stories here that are dedicated to my younger brother who, who died quite suddenly um, just before lockdown. And there are three childhood stories about him. A couple of stories are really important about sort of continual negotiation of sort of um, colonialism between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. So a story like Bobby Moses, which I, I really enjoyed writing. And the other stories, you know, they're, people say when Tony Birch doesn't know what to do with a story, he either jumps in the river or steals the car. So um, they're, they're probably, you know, about people on the margins, which is you know, pretty much the focus of my work. I'll just read a very short segment from a um, story after life, which, to be, to be quite honest, is based on um, the, the, the death of my brother or clean, cleaning out the, the housing commission flat of a brother who has just died. Together we went into Billy's bedroom. The mattress had been stripped. Taking a deep breath, I pointed to the floor at the end of the bed. The dark blood stain in the carpet was obvious. Here, I found him lying here. Angie wiped her eyes on the sleeve of her jumper. Where exactly, she asked. Well, his feet were at this corner of the bed and he was lying on his side. Angie lay down on the floor and turned on her side. Like this? Why are you doing this, Angie? Like this, she repeated insistently. Yeah, like that, I said. Lying on her side, Angie opened her hand and lightly clawed at the carpet with her fingertips. She then curled her body into a ball and closed her eyes. I sat on the bed and breathed in and out quietly, in unison with my sister. She eventually got up from the floor, sat next to me and draped an arm around my shoulder. Neither of us spoke. Thank you. I love the passage that you read, Paige. Um, and I remember vividly when I came across it, um, because it was immensely, immensely clever. I think that's a great pleasure for a reader to encounter, is that level of attention to style that you have in this collection. And, and what was clever about it, um, of course, as I think the audience picked up on, is, you know, and this happens many times in this collection, the idea of a person being a punctuation mark and that being a punctuation to a memory. Um, I'd love to ask about your writing process and your attention to style. Yes, so I think I'm, I'm a big reviser and I think that that's part of it. I um, am always cutting, cutting down. I, do, I teach a bit of writing and with my students I always do this exercise of cut 20 words, now cut 20 more words, now cut 20 more words, now cut it in half and see where you are. And I try to do that as I'm writing as well, though that can become difficult because it gets in, in the way of 
the writing itself because you can get into that perfectionist tendency of this word isn't right, okay, and stuck. Um, but I think for me, I sat with these stories for a really long time and a big part of where the kind of clarity and cleanliness of the story comes from is just that time and patience because I think giving yourself a lot of space or at least for me, giving myself a lot of space between looking at it, I can always see something new that needs revising, that needs cutting out. Um, so it's really just that patience, being slow, having people read my work and taking on board what they say, having those readers, and some are in the room today, I'm very lucky, um, that know what I'm trying to achieve, that say, hey, this isn't sitting right, this joke isn't landing right, I don't think you really needed this word here because you wouldn't want to explain that joke that way. Um, so listening as well to feedback is a huge part of how I got this um, to where I was. Um, there's things I would change still, but mostly happy with it. Do you find the style informs your sense of who the characters are? I always lead with um, voice and style. I guess those other kind of elements of craft for me are, are very rarely my starting point. Um, I start with how I want it to sound. I hear it in my head. I do a lot of editing by sound, so I'll listen back. Does this sound right? Um, and I think that, that, yeah, that style is such an inherent part of how this, where the story comes from. Tony, I was going to ask, actually. I'll, I'll come over. I have my notes in this library book. In this library book He's from Brunswick library, library. <laughs> And we were talking about, I'm not sure if we're all aware, but when you borrow books from a library, uh, the authors do get financially rewarded. Um, sometimes, uh, in Tony Birch's case, he was telling me more than royalties. Um, simply sometimes. From, sometimes. Um, in fact, more than royalties, except for my novel The White Girl, which has sold a lot, but generally, I think I got a library check for $5,000 this year. Don't tell the ATO, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, it was, it, and it's a pleasure to have this from Brunswick Library. It's, um, you know, location does inform your stories a fair deal. Um, and when you mentioned the stolen car and the river, I thought, well, sometimes the stolen car ends up in the river. Yes, it you does. you get a two-for-one deal. Yes, that's right. Um, it's odd for an environmentalist to have that history. <laughs> I want to ask um, about your interest in siblings and sibling relationships, um, male relationships especially, are such a, a large part of your work. And although that's been the case for some time, of course there is the biographical element now. Um, uh, with events that have occurred recently in your family. Has that changed how you approach your sense of sibling relationships on the page? With this book, it did in two ways. So just to... So when my younger brother died, and uh, yeah, you don't want a younger sibling to die, you don't want any sibling to die, but of course for a mother, there's nothing worse than a mother having to bury their ch children, I don't think. And I found myself writing about him, but, you know, private writing. And then I published an essay with the engine, which was called Walking and Being, which is about walking along the Birrarung, the Yarra, and sort of dealing with grief. But then I found writing about my brother in a, in a fictional sense, and that's when I got a bit worried. 
because I, I thought, yeah, now is my brother's death a form of creativity or a form of art? And I was really worried about that. And I talked to my mum about it, and she reads all my fiction, and um, she was really pleased because my younger brother had had a very serious psychiatric illness for about 40 years, like from a lot of his life. And he was a really beautiful child, like emotionally and physically, like he was beautiful. We used to tell him he was adopted because we all had head like busted asses, you know, and he had his beautiful, beautiful face. And um, she said she wanted me to write about him because people didn't know how beautiful he'd been as a person. So I found that the stories that are related to him, so it's a story, Lemonade, that story, Afterlife and Bicycle Thieves, there is a much there's a there's a gentleness there in relationship to siblings which is stronger than in my earlier work, so that's true. But the other thing, Declan, in this collection, and I think it flows on from writing The White Girl, where I, I wrote this thirteen year old fair skinned Aboriginal girl Sissy, there are stories in this like manger and flight where the protagonists are young teenage girls, like in their early teens. And they're really sassy and tough. And, you know, I love the story flight where the sister, because when the brother loses his kite to these thugs and they break his kite, she gets a broken piece of wood and stabs the boy in the thigh with it, which that wouldn't have happened in previous books. And uh, so a lot of the young female characters have come more to the front in my fiction. And I think it's partly as, as a result of writing Sissy and The White Girl, but also... I have four daughters who are all adults now and um, I'm starting to remember what troublemakers they were as teenagers. And so I think drawing on those memories as well is really... And I have a granddaughter who's really tough. She's six. So I think that I can... I think through my relationships with my own kids and my granddaughter, you just start to see them a lot more fully, I think, and, and that's changed as well. Relationships between women was something I was fascinated by in She is Hornet. You've got many meditations on mother-daughter relationships, but you've also got in the story Safety Triangle, meditations on female friendship, the elements of care that take place when people are friends, but also envy, competition. Um, and I, I guess I'm not going to be specific in terms of whether um, you'd like to discuss mother-daughter relationships or female friendships um, or the other. Of course, there are a lot of meditations on relationships in terms of longing and desire for someone who's missing. Um, was that a theme early on when you were writing this? Did it reveal itself gradually? I guess I never really sit down and think this is what the theme of the book and I, as I said I'm quite an autobiographical writer so those were you know the themes of my life during that time I think I always knew that the book was going to be about mothers and daughters it's a book about my relationship with my mother and trying to understand understand my mother and understand myself um, outside of being in that role of daughter I always saw myself as a daughter and really not much else outside of that. So kind of shedding that skin um, and coming into my own personhood. 
But um, the female friendships theme was accidental, and it was only when people started reading the collection as a whole, they said, well, there's a lot of friendships between women in this book. Um, and I thought, oh, that was completely accidental, but those friendships were the things that carried me through the writing of this book. So I think it just bled in um, that, that care, this sort of tenderness um, of women taking care of each other, that was happening in my life and it found its way into the book without me even meaning for it to. What is your experience of female friendship? Oh, I think actually when I was younger, I was one of those women that was really proud of not having many friends that were women. This was when I was much younger as a teen. Um, and now when anyone says that, I kind of really gristle because it, it's part of that sort of patriarchal idea that women are in direct competition with each other and there's only space you know, for one woman in any setting. And I don't believe that anymore. Um, and you know, that's been one of the greatest changes of my life is welcoming in other women um, and, and finding that kind of intimacy maybe that occurs in female friendships that doesn't in other friendships. So that, you know, it is what the book is about, though unintentionally. I wanted to read a passage from the story, Why My Hair Is Long. Um, and you write, if my new boyfriend asks about my mother, I switch the subject. It is easier to change the topic than to change the mind. Tell someone you do not speak to your mother and they always say you should instead of why. <laughs> what, what is, I, I mean, I'm struck, I, I really like actually that kind of going beyond the simple question of, uh, I don't think, you know, relationships are organic. And this idea of people feeling there's something you should do. It's the famous principle of when we represent emotion in literature, we're trying to look beyond the cliche of you must cry at a funeral, you must process grief in a particular way. Um, I think the example many people know from high school is the existential novel L'Etranger by Albert Camus, where Camus posing the problem of what happens when a person doesn't react the way society expects to, uh, to grief, to something personal. So did you find yourself ever falling into any points where you're depicting emotion and you're depicting the process in which your characters deal with something emotionally fraught and finding that you were falling into cliche or you needed to go further? So it's really, this is something I think about a lot of like how effective emotion-led writing can be or not. Um, and for me as a reader, oftentimes when um, a character says exactly how they're feeling or it's really explicit, it takes away from my experience reading it. I like the space and the gaps and I think that maybe that in that section you're reading it, it tries to do that, attempts to do that. I don't know if it's necessarily successful, but these ways that Actually, in, our, in my real life, I do this, and I find with most people as well that we, you know, we're speaking around the truth. We're never actually speaking directly. No one actually just sits there and says, oh, I'm so sad at this funeral. Like, grief and um, passion and love, everything comes out in all these really ugly, kind of messy ways. Um, and I think that, especially in dialogue, I really try to capture that. But even when you've got a first-person narrator, um, 
that kind of what are they saying but they don't really mean, not, not necessarily an unreliable narrator because they think they're being reliable, they think that's what they're feeling, what they're dealing with. Um, I love all that kind of miscommunication and, and trying to get that into the text. I, I imagine that's easier in the short story to have a platform where things can be condensed and you're forced to have characters confront things quickly or evade them quickly, whatever the case might be. I think maybe it's also just the amount of work that it requires of the reader that I feel like I can only demand that of them in a shorter form. And I like that in a short form as well. In a novel, it almost feels like you need the pace, um, you need those clues to keep you going along the way, you need to be fed a bit more. Tony, I feel like when we're talking in the green room of a morning. What happens in the green room stays in the green room. <laughs> it, it should, but inevitably, <laughs> and I always tell this anecdote um, when Philip Roth said it, the Jewish American author Philip Roth, uh, before he passed away in one of his later interviews said, when a writer is born into the family, that family is doomed. <laughs> and my dad would wave around the quote in the newspaper about why our family should be threatened by the potential presence of, a, of an author in the ranks. Um, but I feel that in the green room or wherever you are, you are listening out for stories. And when I was reading this collection, I was struck by the sense of, of following an idea wherever it might lead. And perhaps one example, it's the story, I know some critics were struck by animal welfare. Uh, I'm not going to talk specifically to that story, but it's an example of how you spin a yarn, essentially. You, you'll take a scene, something potentially inconsequential, and, and see where it leads. Yeah, that, well, yeah. I, th I think a couple of good examples of that, and one is I'll talk to that's where animal welfare came from. But I was talking about you to someone this morning at breakfast, so what happens at the breakfast table should stay at the breakfast table. <laughs> but this is relevant to the question you're asking. So before I, I really knew Declan, um, during lockdown we were doing things on Zoom, everyone was. And then the old days when you did a radio interview, they might say, oh, you can call it in from home and it'd be crackly and no one minded. But suddenly when we went to Zoom, we're all sound engineers. People would send you these boxes with really elaborate equipment and say, go into this quiet room and put a, a blanket up and do all these things. And I'd been sent this sound equipment, I think from the ABC, and then I had to pass it on to Declan. And they said, oh, we'll get a courier to pick it up and drop it in Brunswick. And I said, well, I've got to go up to Brunswick to save this to the op shop. I'll drop it at um, Declan Fry's place. And I, so I went over and knocked on Declan's door and gave him the equipment. But then I noticed that Declan Fry lived in the most decrepit apartment block I'd ever seen. And I, I, I grew up on a pretty rough housing commission estate. And I thought, this is a perfect place for a short story or a, a serial killer must live here or a, seri a serial killer has buried people here or both. And I took a heap of photographs around Declan's apartment block and then sent him one. So he must have thought, who's this creep photographing my house? So, so I've kept those photographs and, and that scene of being in your apartment block 
it just feels there's got to be something going to happen there, so I'll follow that. But I think animal welfare is a great example of being sitting in a cafe at Mario's on Brunswick Street and a mate of mine telling, him, telling me two quite different stories. One was about a retirement home for circus animals where he said, you know, there was this really poor a senile lion and a, you know, a hippopotamus with a bad back and it was really tragic. And then he'd gone to Jamaica to buy some marijuana and the guy said, you've got to pay the monkey and he gave the money to a monkey and the monkey disappeared and came back with the marijuana, you see? The, <laughs> so the dealer never touched the deal. And those, I was fascinated by those two little yarns, as you called them, and aspects of those stories with the, you know, the monkey feeding the couple the banana in the cage, um, of collapsing, collapsing them. So what I, I yeah, I, I, I just steal other people's ideas and I tend to put them in my notebook. So I was talking to Paige this morning, so she doesn't know that I'm going to steal her next great idea. And so, yeah, <laughs> I'm always, I am always doing that. And I, I think what interests me there, to be quite serious, I did talk about the three stories about my younger brother, but other than my first book, Shadowboxing, a lot of my work is not, autobi not autobiographical to any large extent. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's that I tend to find a little seed and then, I, yeah, I'll put it into a situation where I might bring girls like my daughters or a kid like my granddaughter. But it's usually a, a trigger. A light will go off and think, that would be a great idea for a, a short story. I was reading on Facebook, another writer I know was writing a thing on Facebook the other night about going out. While they were out, someone stole their car, they crashed it, they took it home, they broke into the house, they had a bath. They cooked a meal, watched something on television, and then left. And I think that something there has got to be written into a short story. I, I have mysteries that have occurred in that crime scene setting where I reside that you visited that I still don't have a solution to. There was someone during lockdown who left sourdough three times. Yeah, you told me that. I did, and it wasn't you. No, it wasn't me. You were just I'm, taking photos. No, I don't do sourdough. <laughs> you don't do sourdough. I don't do sourdough. I do a whole, whole meal. <laughs> Perhaps if you can publish a story about this, yeah, this writer and sourdough is left there, I might find out because I'll, I'll never know. Um, but it's interesting that you mentioned Paige Clark and the idea of autobiography. Certainly when I read your work page, I liked the fact that it felt imaginatively capacious. It didn't feel like disguised memoir, it, it, it certainly didn't necessarily feel autobiographical at all. And it was quite interesting because when I wrote a review of the collection, I talked about the characters having diasporic or hyphenated identities, but just in a by-the-way fashion. It wasn't done to protest that identity should be read into the text or autobiography or anything. It was simply who these people are. Um, and actually, I think some people misread that as me dismissing the idea of identity in the text. Rather, I was saying that I felt the way you portray cultural identity was very true because you simply have characters who are what they are. And that is the reality of most people's identity. It's not something, even if we think about it every day, it's not something that can be easily put into a biography or a compartmentalized box. How, did you feel when you were writing this collection 
certainly as a collection that has been published overseas, but it is coming from someone who, in some sense, is seen as an Australian author. How do you feel Australian writing deals with identity in fiction? And what was your experience growing up, maybe reading it or as a writer? I think English language writing <laughs> struggles with racial identity quite a lot um, in that there's either got to be a performance of, um, of, and this is really just for writers of colour, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander writers, not for white writers. There's no pressure to sort of do that dance and perform that identity. Or it's just assumed whiteness, um, you know, sort of everything's whitewashed and it's seen as neutral position to be white. And that's always something that's really bothered me. I could never find my way in. Um, you know, I'm third generation Chinese American. I'm um, a colonizer of Australia. Uh, I am not from here. So I have a lot of proximity to whiteness. So it's tough for me to, I'm kind of in this in-between um, liminal space. So I wanted the work to reflect that. And I really sought out writers that I thought did that well. Um, and, you know, I think there's more coming now, but it was really tough. Um, and it took me a long time to find my way into that. So I think a few of the older stories, they don't have any identity markers at all. And I think it's a bit of a, a cop-out <laughs> to just be like, you know, well, they are about this Chinese-American Australian person, but they are. Um, they're just about different things than my racial experience in the world. And, and some of the stories have that because that's important to the story. And some of the times it's casual because um, oftentimes it is in life as well. So not that I need fiction to reflect reality perfectly, um, but some attempt to try to do that. And it's still an ongoing um, struggle. And I think I still feel like in my next work, I need to position myself um, you know, as a colonizer and really investigate my own proximity to whiteness. And I'm not sure how to do that either. I suppose people fear that because they think it might over-determine the work. Perhaps it might presume readers' expectations. I know a lot of writers talk about leaving space for the reader in a story, allowing them to imaginatively inhabit and make sense of it in a way that is not spelling it out or forcing a certain assumption um, of how a story should be read. But as you say, materially, we are positioned within Australian writing in a way that I think all Australian authors deal with, um, either as white Australians, um, diasporic, First Nations. Um, and it's been fascinating, actually, to see how, how authors deal with that. I know David Malouf last year was at the Writers' Festival, and it was really interesting, actually, to reflect on his work um, generationally and historically, he was of a different time, but in a sense, it felt as though he never positioned himself as a Lebanese Australian author. So was it something you considered when you thought about, as you say, when you're considering your next work and, and how Paige Clark presents in writing, um, what is that dynamic between acknowledging the material politics of being a colonizing writer, yes, in the English language, but also knowing something perhaps that the English language doesn't know, knowing something culturally that the English language can't necessarily fully have capacity to communicate. Mm. 
And then that's always the struggle in writing is trying to capture something that maybe isn't able to be communicated in words. Like that's the great irony of being a writer or at least that I find in being a writer. It's how do I say something that I don't know how to say? Um, and maybe that's why race, I think, is, is such a beautiful thing to play with. And, and I think maybe that's something I'm excited about, that I do have that position, that I am in that kind of in-between space where I, I am a marginalized person, I know what it's like, but at the same time, I also, you know, Chinese, Chinese women, my God, we're the most accepted um, by whiteness. You know, we are fetishized by whiteness. Um, we are welcomed in with open arms. So I also know what it's like to be in that room of, of white people and for them to be incredibly comfortable with me. I think white people, you know, they see me as white. They tell me all the time, you know, I see you as a white person. Um, so that will hopefully all be in the next book, but it will be very subtle. I think whenever you're talking about what the next book is, it, it always sounds a bit cheesy. And I'm like, just let me do the work. I can make it happen um, on the page. Yeah. It's very, very true. I, I think that idea that when you walk into a room and you are different, you have um, something in your identity and your understanding and approach to the world that is different to the people you're with, you're confronted by a paradox. And the paradox is that on the one hand, as human beings, we all want acceptance. We want to be able to move through the world with a degree of ease. But if we were treated as if we were something we were not entirely for the sake of acceptance, for the sake of just getting along, we would feel that as a terrible loss. And that, I think, I hope is in this book, that kind of anger at, at you may see me, you know, as, as white equivalent, but I'm not. And there's parts of my experience, there's parts of the intergenerational trauma, especially the things that happened to my mother, which I believe are the reason why we don't have a relationship um, because of all these sort of painful things that happened to her growing up as a second generation Chinese woman in the middle of America. Um, those things are all part of why me, when I'm standing here in the room talking to you, and you don't necessarily, not you, but you know, the, the sort of white, imaginary white person that I'm speaking to in this scenario. Tony, talk to me. I know that you would have a lot to say about this. No, I do not. Um, I, I suppose that um, I often get a quizzical question about some, well, particularly my short story as collection. So I've now done nine books, I think, including the poetry collections. And The White Girl is the only book that people regard as, a, and to me it sounds odd in a way, but they'll talk about that as a, a wholly Aboriginal novel. And I understand that's because the, the material, it's dominated by um, Odette Brown and her daughter, Sissy, so, her granddaughter, sorry. So people talk about that as an Aboriginal novel. Um, for me as a short story writer, and, and I'm inter very interested in, in what, pages just said because sometimes when I write a story um, and like the story Bobby Moses I want to write a story about an Aboriginal man. I want to write a story about an Aboriginal man trying to find his way back to country that he's never lived on and this confrontation he has with a white policeman on the highway. But in a lot of my stories when I begin to write it and it might seem odd I don't have an awareness of whether the characters are Aboriginal, non-Aboriginal, white, brown. I'm actually more interested in the circumstances that I put them in. 
and I suppose, and I'm talking about this afternoon in a session that I'm hosting, I'm still really driven by issues of class and I'm eternally frustrated of two things around class in Australia. One, at an intellectual level, so at an academic university level, people talk about class in relationship to Marxism and it's now a dated you know, intellectual idea in universities so they don't talk about it anymore. And so because it doesn't matter to intellectuals, it doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter to politicians because if you start to talk about class, people then talk about class warfare, which is a ridiculous hot button to push. And I grew up in Fitzroy in the 60s where there were, in a relative sense, a lot of Aboriginal people, a lot of very poor white people, a lot of migrants, mostly Greek and Italian, but when I went to a high school, I went to a high school with a lot of Chinese Australians who lived around West Melbourne. Their parents worked in the markets, so they run fruit stalls at the markets. And my great friend, the poet Pio, he talks about our generation. So we're a generation of people now from our early 60s back to the, you know, in our 40s. He has this beautiful word where he talks about the emotional vibration of the street. So in our family homes, we were ethnic in that sense. But in the street, we were the kids, the street belonged to us. So that all of my friendships from growing up are across, are, when people say, well, what are your friendship groups? It sounds weird to say it's, a, it's that old inner city sense. So, yeah, I, my high school was a largely Greek high school. My primary school, being a Catholic, was largely um, Italian. Um, on the street, it was mostly yeah, black fellows and, and, and poor white fellows. But I'm, I am essentially still interested in the ideas of class and inequity more than um, issues of what we might call identity in the sense of ethnicity. So that people read my work and say it's not Aboriginal enough. So I, I just say, well, you're not getting your money back, you know. <laughs> and I get, I get frustrated with that. And I have, I have, you know, strong... The Aboriginal community of Fitzroy, like the Redfern community up here in the 60s, we we wouldn't have differentiated see ourselves as being Aboriginal and working class. And now you can't be both. You can't be, you know, these cross-sexual identities don't seem to work for people. And I, I, I'm too old to... Re my, my younger daughters are right up with identity politics, but I'm, I'm too old. I just want to be a ex-telegram boy. <laughs> when I read The White Girl, I think it speaks so much to white bureaucracy and calling it wholly Aboriginal, it's a disconcerting thing to hear. Do you, what do you think that says? That well, kind of what it says is you're more likely to win a prize. Um, it, it's that people have particular expectations. I, I mean, I agree with you completely. It's, a, it's an indictment on white bureaucracy and that came out of both personal experience but also, you know, I, I my PhD's in history. I taught Aboriginal history at Melbourne Uni for many years, and it was about the bureaucratisation of the stolen generations. Um, having said that, I, I don't want to disclaim what I set out to do in that book. I did set out to write a book about love between Aboriginal people. So in that book, my, you know, when you start a new project page, my, my whole motivation was to say, as a, as a historian, as a man living amongst older Aboriginal women, 
I'd heard terrible stories like saying that Aboriginal women had given their kids up to the state because they didn't love them or the state would take better care of them. And knowing Stonegen members who'd been taken and what they talked about was a complete absence of love for the rest of their life, that my, when I created this idea, this character, Odette Brown, I thought she's just going to be this beautiful woman. And there's a lot of physicality between the women in that book, a lot of physical touch. And that was the, what I wanted to do was write a book about tenderness and love between Aboriginal women. So I was, I was overtly motivated by that. It's more, and I'm very happy with the reception of that book, it's more that if I don't, and I think it goes to what Paige has said about sometimes it matters, the identity of a character, sometimes it, it doesn't. That if you don't... So, so people say, well, is it, I don't know if this... Like in the first story, Darkest Last Night, people say, well, is this an Aboriginal family or not? To me, I don't... I haven't even thought of the question of that. It's about women. This is a story about women. This is a story about girls, and they could be Aboriginal women. They could be white women. They could be Australian Chinese women because, you know, in that story around domestic violence, it could be any woman. Is there anyone younger you read, Tony... Because I agree with you about the presence of class and, and a Marxist politics being more determinative and perhaps more hope was invested in class in the past. And we look at past Australian literature like Udrun Nunakul, David Ireland, uh, and your generation, Tim Winton, Richard Flanagan, Christos Cholkis. Those are male examples, but I use them specifically because I, I sense there's a concern in those authors' work that resonates with yours around class and Catholicism, and also about gender, um, the relationships between women and men. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, um, Tim Winton's short stories, and the reason I read Winton's short stories um, so widely as my daughters were doing them at school, so they wanted me to help with their essays, and they always did really badly, by the way, with those essays. Um, I really like his short stories in particular, and I think with the shorter form, a more concise form, he, he really is able to be, you know, to be quite pitch perfect in, in his story. I actually still think, um, for me, even though the material is different, um, Someone asked me the other day, this is now we're really telling tales, oh, do you think that person, they seem a bit wider, they're a bit speedy? And I said, what do you mean? They said, do you think they're on speed? I said, I would not, I've never seen speed or someone take, I've never seen anyone take an illicit drug, which surprises people. Um, that Christos Tocqueville's first book, Loaded, is the book I feel most familiar with in the sense of the way that it maps the city and it's the recklessness of that teenager in that book. And even though in the, the, the sexual politics and sexuality of the book, it's quite different, I actually think that that book and a little bit of Christos's other work I, I relate to because the way that it posits itself in the city of Melbourne. Um, I think, though, in relationship to class, there's also an annoyance. I'm, I'm getting really annoyed now, Paige, that I think in Australia, the way that reviewers, and, and not you, well, not that you've reviewed <laughs> one of my books... I wouldn't let you. Um, <laughs> that um, the way reviewers write about class in Australia is actually quite redundant. They still they will talk about Marxism and social realism, and that's they're both not only redundant terms. The way that 
right is right about class is not within a sort of vacuum of, of, of Marxist ideology. I think one of the things that if you read fiction coming out of the US, which might be about working class and ethnicity, coming out of Britain, which has a great tradition of working class writing, it's not written about in a condescending... The, the, the reviews don't have that patronising, condescending tone to them. It's either good writing or it's not good writing. So I've read... Um, great American and British fiction, which I would say, okay, I, I feel an affinity with that subject matter. And when I read reviews of that work, it can actually talk about class in a much more sophisticated way. I, I don't, again, I think it's the problem in Australia of this, this mythology of an, living in an egalitarian society, that people, you know, yeah, when people read my work, I did say on Monday night, at the New South Wales Premier's Awards, people often say how grim it is. It's a very particular label attached to Australian writing which confronts the issues of inequality that I don't think affects work even in you know, a country like the US where you, know, you have this sort of notion of freedom, notion of, in Britain where you have a, a reality of class division, I think they understand how class and inequality work in ways that Australia just can't really deal with. Do you think that inability to have a discussion about class is tied to colonisation? Oh, absolutely. And it's, I mean, it, I think you're really hitting on something because I don't think it, it's also tied to an inability to tell a true story around um, convictism and colonisation and class and the, inter the other again about the interactions that occur in those lower class, you know, so-called lower classes and Aboriginal people throughout history, which is sometimes quite violent and intense, but also sometimes a lot more. Um, in Fitzroy, my mum and dad talk, well, my, my dad has just passed, but talk about what they call the rock and roll generation. And what that means is a lot of Aboriginal kids in the 50s who were into Elvis Presley, Bill Haley and the Comets, Little Richard, and a lot of the poorer white kids and Greek and Italian kids, all, they came together around rock and roll. And in that generation, which are people in their early 80s, there's a lot of intermarriage, which you didn't see before or after. And they're a remarkable generation for finding a way to turn to each other. And, and people don't write about that stuff either. No, it's actually inspiring the number of stories that aren't being told because it's the work. I think the challenge as authors is to be driven to write something. And I, I always think of Bukowski saying, no, it wasn't Bukowski, thankfully. Sometimes I'm like, I don't want to mention Bukowski today. Um, it was Burroughs. <laughs> Burroughs was asked by his cleaner, why are you tapping away on that typewriter? What are you doing? He said, I'm writing. And she said, why? And he said... I, I can't help it, like it's a disease. I just, even if I wanted to, I couldn't not. And I, I think that that drive to, to show something is so important to us as writers, particularly when we have redundant discussions. We have facile, simplifying discussions that leave out so much. Yeah, look, I, I, take, I take very much to heart Page's point about you know, from the position of a coloniser. Um, I would just say, like, so with my story, Bobby Moses, which is about an old Aboriginal man who meets a copper on the highway, and the copper's, he's a pretty lazy policeman, he's not really doing his job. I purposely set out to write a story about what happens when 
an Aboriginal man confronts authority and we know the potential violence of that authority. And I wanted to write a story where, in my history of growing up, of accommodation. For most of your life where there's potential violence, you have to find ways, if you're going to avoid that confrontation, how do you accommodate each other? And that story is about the way that these two oppositional forces find an accommodation. And people might think it's a soft ending or too sentimental, but, and even if people say that, I, I say, okay, I get what you're saying, and that was my intention, because even though I've written about colonial violence, particularly in relationship to legality, most of, again, my experience as a kid is about how Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people living in a very, very tight space. Yeah, you imagine living in a boarding house. You've got a family in each room. You've got an Aboriginal mum with four kids. You've got a Greek mum with four kids. She's come home from the factory. She's come home from the factory. They have to get their four kids bathed in this little room. There's a kitchenette, as they used to call them, on each floor. And I've interviewed people. I interviewed an older Aboriginal woman who said, I said, how'd you get on? She said, oh, she said, well, you have to get on. If you want to feed your kids, put them to bed, clean, and there's a Greek woman there, you've got to find a way to get on. And so for me, and I know this was going to maybe hit off a hot button, it's like when people talk about things like reconciliation as a sort of a, an institutional bureaucratic poster, I'm not interested. But these women find amazing ways to accommodate each other, and I'm, I'm really interested in that. This idea of accommodation is really a large part of your work too, Paige, and it's interesting that Tony's mentioned factories. I remember when reviewing this book, one of my favourite stories was Times I've Wanted to Be You. Uh, that moved me intensely. It's incredibly well written. It's succinctly done. It's just an incredibly great story. <laughs> and I read it and it reminded me of an Italo Calvino story about a factory worker who goes each day, works in the factory, and his partner also has a job, and they're working different day and night shifts, so they never see each other. But when he comes home, he goes to bed, and he can feel her warmth that she's just left behind. And you use almost the exact same image of, my husband was a man who mopped at his own parties before the guests had even gone home. But he never said anything about the crumbs. He let me have that. And he ate biscuits on his side of the bed when she goes to work. And the ways that we accommodate and live in each other's lives is intensely moving. Um, I, I just wondered if there's anything you'd like to speak to that Tony said or about this concept of accommodation. Um, and even if you... No, I, you know, I, I was... When you were talking about that story, I love that that tension... Um, and then the accommodation that happens. And I think that that's such a beautiful word. And I think I actually strive for that in my work as well. And I mean, I think that so much of the kind of Chinese in Anglo um, world is about accommodation, that kind of adaption of, um, you know, trying to feel safe um, by making, you know, making these relations. And I, um, there's very much in my book, a capitalist thread that maybe talks not to class, but um, to this idea of money as being very protective. Um, my 
Chinese side of the family were always very wealthy. And this was really incredibly important to them because if you have money, then you're safe. And I, and I think, you know, that, that is a really important theme in my work and, and sort of shedding that. I was just talking to you both earlier about how I don't, I don't really like shopping and I don't like spending money. And I think it still is that instinct of, uh, okay, I need, I need to protect myself. Um, but it's still within this kind of really like capitalist market value that I don't necessarily believe in. Um, yet I'm still operating in that space. We were discussing how much Tony and myself love Muji, and <laughs> we thought we had a fellow traveler in Paige. M- but... Muji pajamas, I, I love Muji pajamas. <laughs> um, but you're very right, I think, that idea of class, and we often say that there's nothing more gauche than someone who says money doesn't matter. Only an intensely, outrageously rich person could possibly say that. <laughs> Um, Do you say gauche? Gauche, yeah. That's a new word. What's gauche? You know what it means, don't you, Paige? <laughs> Just a bit what's, what's, go, what's gauche for an old man? Go ahead. I'd love to hear because I would... Put that on the spot actually, here. Gauche. How would you describe I it? I would just think of it as being a bit, a bit tacky. Okay. Uh, mm. It means awkward. Actually, the word is French and it means left, as in left-handed. <laughs> I, I should tell you, Paige, that um, on the issue of wealth and you'll be safe, um, I have a friend who is even older than me. He's in his 70s and his partner is Chinese and she's in her early 30s. And when he went to China to meet her family, he was so anxious that they would say, what are you doing with this young woman, you old man? And when her dad met him, he said to how old are you? And he said, I'm 78, so that's good. You don't have long left. <laughs> <laughs> but he had good superannuation, you see. <laughs> I, was, I was very satisfied um, when we met Paige that I'd, I'd never met Paige and I'd reviewed the book and I compared um, your style to Amy Hempel's. Often, I'm that sort of writer who maybe dismays some readers by throwing in every reference I possibly can. And whether an author has read someone or not, I think we do share obsessions. Some of them have come out. I didn't know Tony Birch and myself love Muji. And, and I didn't know Tony and Paige had these stories to share. Um, but yeah, Amy Hempel did inform your work and it was, it was nice to, to get one right for once. But tell me about your influences. And you mentioned even earlier writers who you felt dealt well with the concerns that you like to, to write about? Mm, yes, well, I was telling Tony earlier that actually um, Ellen Van Nerven's been a really big inspiration to me just um, in the way that Heat and Light as the collection operates. Um, and I think especially like writing in Australia, looking so-called Australia, looking at that collection as a guide in terms of when I was putting my work together. Um, and maybe stylistically, it's um, not the same on the line level, but I think that the imaginary and very real spaces that that collection goes to were an influence um, in, my, in my work and that kind of surreal, the surreal spaces that I also like to go to. Um, but definitely Amy Hempel um, was one of those writers that showed me how to do it, actually reading her short story in the cemetery where Al Jolson was buried. That was a story that 
allowed me to write my first ever story. Before that, I knew that I was a writer, but I had never written anything and I couldn't figure out how to do it. And I read that story and I was like, okay, I think I get it now. Like, I think that I can do this. So I guess that's really my, I think for any writers out there is to find, you know, the people that show you the way to do what you need to do. And I think that's the beauty that we're all up here, but we're all very different writers in what we're intending to do. Um, and, and we all have to find that way for ourselves. I absolutely have to know, what was your first ever story? It's the last story of the book. Um, Summer. Dead Summer, Dead which Summer. is, um, it's, it's maybe a bit embarrassing. Maybe in some ways it's a bit immature or um, less clean than the other stories. But I, I kind of like that in the book you can see the process of me learning how to write. And I think Laurie Moore said something along those lines of, you know, being a writer is being okay with people seeing you learn how to write on the page. So the next book will be will be better. Maybe not. <laughs> I don't know. But but you know, I'll, I'll be doing something different. I'll, I'll I'll have figured out what I was figuring out in this book. Well, I mean, I, I feel like maybe it might be. <laughs> maybe I should be wary. But thank you so much, Paige and Tony. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, a big round of applause, Paige Clark, Tony Birch. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.